We're back. Welcome, one and all. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, episode four of Scott is in your ear holes right now. The Melbourne Food Podcast. Get your knives, get your forks, get your spoons, get your spatulas. And get stuck in to all the news that's fit to chew. Episode 4 is going to be a big one. Sit back and relax. Dinner by Heston is on the menu this week. The jewel in the Crown Resort's Packer Empire. In the crown of crown. The tiara, if you will. We're breaking it down this week. We're visiting Dinner by Heston. Giving you a history of the man. And we're going to be talking about a history of celebrity restaurants in Melbourne and why they are perhaps doomed, given previous history. I hope that doesn't happen to Heston. But if you look at the form, there's every chance it will. Good God, there's some absolute train wrecks. We've got some news for you, some comings and goings around town. And then we're going to go on a little bit of a rant about unoriginal restaurant names. Unoriginal bars and cafes, etc., etc., all using pretty much the same idea. And frankly, I'm making a stand, and it starts this week on episode four of Scarf. Alrighty, it's time for some news. So, do you like Mark Best? Have you heard of him? I'll let you know who he is. Mark Best is that really imposing bald chef that sort of looks like a supervillain. That is one of the best chefs in Australia's history. His seminal restaurant, Mark, which closed last year, has long been looked at as one of the most influential and best restaurants in the country. And it's produced some of Sydney's best young talent and indeed Melbourne's. He recently sold out and sold up and has headed to the seas. He's cooking on boats creating a fine dining experience for those people who enjoy cruises. Personally, I would rather stick my head in a bucket of methylated spirits and go on a cruise. But if I was going to go on one, it would be towards one with a Mark Best restaurant on board. If you were a fan of his Melbourne outpost of his sort of entry-level bistro, uh, come charcuterie, come wine bar, come all-out great spot pay modern at the Intercontinental on Flinders Lane, you're out of luck. Because it's closed and it's not coming back. It's been closed for a while. Many people thought it was undergoing some renovations. But it seems in the interim that Mark has decided not to come back. Not to be involved with the brand anymore. The Sydney branch is also closed. Which I understand is going to house a permanent enclosure for his talent in the future. He'll be on the pans there at the Four Seasons Hotel in Sydney. But Melbourne fans of Mark Best, you're out of luck. Paymodern was part of the Macintosh group. You know that. Um, all-encompassing cool crew that brought us Moveda and Coda um, and another restaurant I'm about to mention. Plans are afoot to, call, to turn it into a bit of a, an all-night jazzy New York-style hub of debauchery. No one really knows what that means. It's just words. It could be anything. But to underline the point, Paymodern is no more. And I hate to say it, but another restaurant which might be no more is Otea. Flinders Lane, which opened to rapturous reviews, the signing of young French talent Florent Gerardin, who brought in his avant approach to uh, sort of French bistro cooking and no satel dining, lots of beautiful charcuterie and offal and all sorts of adventurous things, has gone the way of the dodo too, with Florent upping and leaving 
a press release saying that the two had irreparable differences in the way the business should be run, which is usually a code word for he was giving me the shits. But we don't really know what's going to happen with Oter. When a restaurant is so built around the talent of a chef and the marquee name, um, it becomes difficult to carry on that brand, particularly if it's such a new brand. But I do wish them well. They have had fantastic reviews and it is considered one of the better new restaurants in Melbourne. Uh, so watch this space. It'll be interesting to see what Florent does next. And a bit of out-of-town news. When you talk about restaurants in Melbourne, you talk about Chin Chin, the all-encompassing beast, which is said to be the most profitable restaurant per square foot in the world. The long-promised Sydney outpost is getting ever closer. The Surrey Hills location looking to sort of reinvigorate an old vintage building in that area has made strides toward a possible opening date. They have signed up ex-Guillaume general manager who used to oversee Benelong and Guillaume's restaurants in Sydney, Craig Hemmings, to steer the ship. And what a busy ship that will be with many icebergs coming its way. The expectations will be huge. The lines will be even bigger. They hope to open sometime in 2017. I wish them all the best. It's very difficult. It would be a little bit like Josh Whedon making episode 7 of Star Wars. The expectations are huge, but I think they can do it. All right, that's what's going around in the news this week. I thought I'd spend a little bit of time doing something a little bit different, a bit of a precursor to what's going on this week with our restaurant review. We're reviewing Dinner by Heston. And when you say Heston, who are you talking about? Heston's one of those words that immediately conjures a name, an image, a person, a history. A bit like Nigella, or Jamie, or Gordon. All of these names in the food world that people instantly relate to. Heston's done it a little bit differently. He's done it by sort of presenting the food first as opposed to his personality first, even though he's a bit of a kooky cat. But I thought it'd be interesting to look at some of those names in the past that have come to Melbourne and tried to create a Melbourne outpost in this famously brutal and food-orientated town. A bit of a history of what happened, why it didn't work, and why my fingers are crossed that Dinner by Heston his second out branch of a um, very successful secondary brand behind his Fat Duck restaurant is the exception to the rule. So we've got to go all the way back to the 90s to see the first sort of instances of a celebrity chef coming to Melbourne with the famous, infamous, legendary Paul Bocuse opening his restaurant at the forgotten Japanese chain in south and in, uh, along the river there, along the water, um, Daimaru. People of my age and probably a little bit older will remember checking out Daimaru and thinking, how on earth is this a good idea? A giant Japanese uh, convenience department store in the middle of a, a Melbourne hotel complex. And it sort of didn't work. Uh, but it did give us Philippe Michel, who was the executive chef there, who has since gone on to do some great things around town and a name I will come back to in a moment. We certainly wouldn't have Melbourne's favourite dish, the Philippe Michel rotisserie chook, if it wasn't for the failed Paul Bocuse experiment of the 90s in Daimaru. So I thank you for that. A few years down the track, and something I can speak on. I won't go into greater detail because it's probably good fodder for a future episode. But Gordon Ramsay, one of my heroes, someone I'm a big fan of, opened an outpost of his brand, Maze, during a sort of ill-conceived and ultimately disastrous attempt to expand that brand all over the world. I think he took it to South Africa as well and other parts of Europe. 
along with a couple of locations in London. Maisel's a sharing plate concept, basically a design your own degustation. And I had the great misfortune of actually working at Maze for a short time. It was a complete disaster. It was a, an exercise in wasting money and not really having an idea what you're doing. Too many chefs in the kitchen, uh, both metaphorically and literally. And, and it was a complete disaster to work for because um, degustation and fine dining is hard enough, let alone having a completely variable sort of half tapas, half degustation. Um, it was just a train wreck and it didn't last very long. Uh, it did give us John Lawson, though, who opened the, uh, as previously mentioned on this podcast, number eight by John Lawson, is hopefully doing something in the future. But um, I, I guess more so than Paul Bercuse being a, a bit of a misjudging of the market and certainly location, Gordon's was a, an overspending and a complete um, losing control of your collateral and your direction and finding yourself nosediving quickly towards insolvency and it did not last. And that location uh, inside the Crown Metropole, one of the lovelier hotels in Melbourne, has never really recovered. It's been taken over by Crown and it's sort of an all-day eatery. I don't even know what it's called, Mr. Something or so-and-so. Um, it's never really um, regained its luster, even though it is a beautiful location with great views. Um, yes, Gordon Ramsay in Melbourne. Not one of the uh, highlights in Gordon's portfolio of uh, expansions. And then the sort of antithesis to Gordon Ramsay. His great rival, to whom there's been many a slinging match in the media, the boy known as Jamie Oliver, the naked chef. Big fan of Jamie, I have to say. He's a great man. He's done a lot of good things in this world. He's got a lot of haters out there, but you know, people that try and make a change to our society often do. And I think he's an underrated cook. I like his food. And the restaurant I'm talking about here is his 15 which opened with much fanfare and an accompanying uh, reality series, host with, uh, which also gave us Toby Paddock, who was sort of his uh, confidant and right-hand man during that series. Um, his 15 in Melbourne was, I believe, the second one after uh, his London restaurant. I think he's also got one in Cornwall and a couple other places. Um, Jamie has been able to expand more successfully with his Jamie Italian restaurants, um, and also a couple of branches of a very cool restaurant concept in London called Barbacoa, which is a barbecue restaurant in conjunction with another chef. Um, but Fifth Day didn't fare so well in Melbourne. Um, I remember visiting in the early days and being pretty impressed with the food. And they actually had a short-lived $15 two-course lunch deal, which was either very good sort of uh, co-branding with a name or a desperate play to get people in. And I think it was the latter because Jamie uh, unfortunately had to close that restaurant not long after it opened. Um, it has transformed into several places since, including bringing us back full circle, currently the outpost for Philippe Michel. Some litigation issues involved. I believe there was some thieving going on from management, and I believe there was even an attempted arson attack uh, when it was Jamie Oliver's 15, which is a bit of a worry uh, when it gets that bad that the management are trying to burn it down. Can't say that bodes too well. Are you noticing a pattern here with celebrity chefs in Melbourne? Am I setting the table properly? This is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to set the table. Will I set the table as eloquently and beautifully as they do at Dinner by Heston? The latest in a line of celebrity restaurant openings in Melbourne? I hope so. Strap yourselves in, sit back, pull out your knife and slice into the delicious meat, fruit, pate and mandarin jelly that is my review of Dinner by Heston on Scott.
The year is 2011. The scene is London. Knightsbridge, where the rich and famous play. And I am a snotty-nosed Australian out to conquer the world. Not really sure what I'm doing in London, how long I'm going to be there, or how I'm going to pay for my expensive restaurant habit. But I have heard a rumour that Heston Blumenthal, the owner of one of the best restaurants of all time, the Fat Duck, has opened a ritzy, cool new restaurant in central London. It's the talk of the town. It's been open for about two days. Apparently it's booked out for months, but I'm going to try and go there. And me and my mate roll up to the Mandarin Oriental on the corner of Hyde Park. We walk in to a beautifully ornate hotel. We stroll up to a specifically guarded entrance, order a drink at the bar, and ask the maitre d' if there's any chance for a table for two. We are shocked and amazed to find that in fact there is. We go inside and have one of the better meals I've ever had. In my time in London, I went back to dinner by Heston three more times. They did a very affordable lunch deal, which did include the marquee dish, which I'll get to in a moment. And I was specifically thrilled to find out that he was bringing his restaurant, Dinner, to Melbourne. And that is the restaurant we're reviewing this week, Dinner by Heston. The history of this restaurant is very interesting in that it is all about history. Dinner by Heston has a very, very strong idea behind it and its ideals are based in classic cooking in England. A lot of their dishes are based on um, historically forgotten dishes, which um, Heston and his executive, executive chef Ashley Palmer Watts are particularly interested in, a lot of classic techniques which are no longer used, and bringing those ideas back in a modern fine dining setting. The man behind the pans in the executive chef there is Ashley Palmer Watts, the former head chef of the Fat Duck, now controls both the kitchen in Knightsbridge and in Crown, um, and he does a particularly good job. The dish in question, the most Instagram dish maybe in the world, is the meat fruit. All fantastic, great, big name marquee restaurants need a big name, fantastic dish that people can cling to. And this is their one, it's a meat fruit. It's a beautifully whipped uh, liver pate with a thin mandarin film on top, little fake leaf on the top, some charred bread. Basically, it looks like a mandarin. They do a particularly good job of making it look like a mandarin. I suppose this is a play on the fact that the original restaurant is in the Mandarin Oriental hotel but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be on the menu at melbourne and i'm thankful it is god damn it's delicious this all came about because of hessen's blockbuster deal with the packer crew at crown to bring the fat duck on excursion following the lead of noma going to japan and various other places to melbourne bit of controversy here as someone who is involved in the restaurant industry has a few connections certainly loves it and certainly spends most of his disposable income on it, I was not able to get a seat at the Fat Duck. A lot of uh, foodies with a lot of followers on Instagram that really know nothing about it were able to get there. A lot of chefs who probably know people were able to eat there multiple times. Am I bitter? Incredibly bitter. Ridiculo levels of bitter. And people will ask me in years to come, hopefully when this podcast is famous and I am an Anthony Bourdain-esque travelling Man, just eating and documenting my hedonistic travels. How was the fat duck in Melbourne? That would have been great. And I'll have to say, sorry, couldn't get a seat. Would I have coughed up the $500 ahead just for the food? Yes. Would I have coughed up another $500 for the matching wines? Yes, I would have done it. 
I would have handed over my bank details, my credit card, my life savings, the money I've got stashed under my pillow with all the whimsy of some virginal young man on a date for the first time, desperate for some loving. I would have done it, but I can't. It's over now, and it will never be coming back. But we do have Dinner by Heston in the same place where the Fat Duck pop-up existed. We now have this beautiful restaurant to call our own in Melbourne. And we spoke about the history of celebrity restaurants. Do we think it will last? Well, I hope so. I believe there's a bit more structure behind this one, a bit more intent, a bit more class, a bit more finesse. We're going to be talking about that right now. What makes it classy? What gives it finesse? One of the things they did, which is a sight to behold, is recreate exactly the kitchen at Dinner by Hess in London. They recreated the exact way it looks, the way it's laid out. It's part of the show. The pineapple rotisserie where they make the tipsy cake is there in the exact same position. The beautiful handmade stoves that would have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars are there in the exact same positions, which means the systems and procedures are the same. The way the food leads up to the pass, the way the chefs are able to move and communicate between stations is all there. It's exactly the same. It's brilliant. And it's part of the show. When you get there, you walk past the kitchen. You can look inside. It's pristine. It's polished to within an inch of its life. It's sheeny, it's shiny, it's delicious. It makes you hungry. It makes you want to experience the food that's coming your way. And what sort of food is coming your way? Well, basically, it's really good French a la carte food um, informed by English history. There's sous vide, there's butter, there's bastings, there's steak frites. All the ideas laid down by the French forefathers are followed. But the ingredients and the concept behind it is all vintage English. Salamagundi, ketchup mayonnaise, forgotten dishes from a past era, even the meat fruit. These are things passed down through history. So you've got this French technique informing this English history with fantastically Australian premises. Australian ingredients, Australian ideas. Curry kangaroo tail in the rice porridge. Um, recently they did, as we spoke about on the, on the podcast, a Vegemite ice cream dessert. There's a Lamington dessert. And that's what I think separates Dinner by Hessen from some of the other celebrity chef outposts of restaurants in the past. They're taking it seriously. They're looking at the restaurant scene in Melbourne and the ingredients available to them, and they're delivering them in a way that people can feel it's their own. Plus, you've got this amazing, amazing bar. Um, as you walk inside, which is you know on par with any space to sit in a restaurant in the country. You know the fit out is so lush. You're looking out over the river. You can watch into the sky. I th- I'd imagine it would be one of the best places to sit on New Year's Eve as the fireworks go off across the Yarra. And the fit out of the restaurants the same. It's a, it's a comfortable, lush space um, which feels cool and on point. It's beautifully temperate. Um, the service is outstanding. Um, they're really taking it seriously, but having a little bit of fun with it because obviously it's a very um, interactive um, cuisine. You don't go there expecting the fat duck. Um, don't go there expecting lots of plays on texture and, and, and style and technique. One thing they do do quite successfully is a roaming um, liquid nitrogen ice cream trolley, which is you know um, has a tendency to become a bit cliched and, and, and hackney, but I think it's really well delivered and cool. Uh, one thing that has to be mentioned, dinner by Hessen, 
it um, obviously has the brand name of one of the best chefs in the world and has the location of one of the best restaurants in the world um, and it has the price point of one of the best restaurants in the world. They don't offer a degustation, they don't offer a set menu, they take a bit more of a historical approach and it's a la carte and as such, goddamn, is it expensive. We're talking 30 to $40 for an entree. We're talking 40 to $60 for a main. We're talking sort of in that 20 to $30 uh, range for dessert plus sides they do do beautiful steaks as well if you have one of their steaks obviously depending on its sort of provenance and quality it's going to cost a lot more you know upwards that the delirious high $100 to $200 mark um, plus the drinks list ain't cheap plus little add-ons um, it's an expensive night out it's on par with somewhere like Vudemond or Bray or um, Attica in terms of what you'll spend you're probably getting a bit less food maybe slightly bigger portions. Personally, I quite enjoy that. I think it's a bit of a throwback to a time when restaurants were more focused on um, a balance of value for money and provenance and technique on a plate. So you've got a, 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 an example, a lamb dish with a, you know, a nice quality large portion of lamb. You've got a snappy dish as opposed to a thumb-sized um, portion of snappy. You've got you know a proper... 200 gram piece of snapper that's been cooked in, in harmony of all the ingredients around it. It ain't cheap. It's a special occasion place. It's not somewhere you're going to go, you know, every couple of weeks. It's not somewhere you're going to go every couple of months. It's probably somewhere you really only go um, maybe once a year if you're lucky. But I would urge you to support it for the very reasons that we didn't support Paul Bercuse, Gordon Ramsay, and Jamie Oliver. I think we need to support Heston Blumenthal because it's this is a serious restaurant. This is a for all its um, international backing and, and um, celebrity brouhaha, it is a Melbourne restaurant. You know, this, a lot of the staff are Melbourne, the front of house in Melbourne. The ingredients are Australian. Um, and for my money, it represents one of the best dining experiences I've had in Australia. So I'm not a big fan of giving out reviews. If I was going to give a out of five meat fruits, it'd be dangerously close to five. Go to Dinner by Heston. It is fantastic. We are lucky to have restaurants like this in this country, in this city, and we should show our love for it by coughing up our disposable income. Here's what you do. Just don't have a beer for a couple of weeks. Stop buying cigarettes. Cancel your stand subscription. All these things add up, and you can have a delicious fine dining experience. Too much positivity coming out of my lips this week. It's time to rant on scoff. You know, I think I blame Andrew McConnell. I think I blame Andrew McConnell because of the names he chose to give his restaurants 10 years ago. Now filtering down to an inescapable melange, a haze of sameness. So let it be known I am not criticising Cumulus Inc, which of course is the artifice, the original Melbourne all-day concept. I'm not criticising Cutler & Co, which is one of the 10 best restaurants in Australia and one I'm very fond of. What I'm criticising is the endless and seemingly infinite level of ignorance that there is out there when it comes to naming restaurants something with Anco or something with Inc. And I'll throw another couple in there. 
These are ones I'm banning. No more, guys. We've reached saturation points with and co and ink. Another one. Saint. Saint. Saint Peter. Saint Patty. Saint John. Saint whatever. Saint Cloud. Saint David. It's over. No more saints. No more saints. It's done. That's it. Mr. Mr. Tom, Mr. Smith, Mr. Brown, Mr. Collins, Mr. Whatever. It's over. No more. Saint, Mr. and Co. Inc. Gone. No more. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I don't care that you got out of your hedge fund job and you've always wanted to own a restaurant and you spoke to lots of idiots that propped you up and said, yeah, it is a great idea. I've heard about it peripherally, even though I don't know anything about restaurants or know anything about trends. I think you should call it Saint, Mr. and Co. and put a whole bunch of money into it with some fake hand-me-down rip-offs. And start charging absorbent amounts for it and then go wonder why you went bust because you don't know anything about the game. I'm talking about the same history of the world.